Before I start the message today, I just want to say and make a comment. Having had four, well, <coughs> my wife and I having had four children. Four teenagers, four young whippersnippers, three under three at one stage. It was busy in our household. I just want to share some with you. First of all, a principle. The principle on life is this. Number one, it is wise to learn from your own experience, but it is wiser and cheaper to learn from the experience of other people. In other words, it's expensive to have to make every mistake yourself. Say, I know you thought it was not good, but let me try and let me spend time and effort and energy in there. It doesn't work. Here's my point. If I was to have my time again with my children, and I'm absolutely going to implement this with my grandchildren, doesn't matter whether you're married or not, what I would do is I would be more intentional about training my children why Christianity is evidentially true. Did you hear that? Evidentially true. And I would want to train them to articulate that to their friends. It's one thing knowing something. It's another thing communicating it. Get it? Good. So with that, I'd like you to whip out your outlines. We're going to finish up. Uh, when my technology decides to cooperate here, uh, study in the, in the book of Daniel. Now, today, has everybody got an outline? Can I see your hand if you have not got one? Kimberly Ann. Somebody, uh, Jane, one lady down here. <laughs> Shmimberly Muckley. <laughs> Anybody else need one? Over there. Mikey, do you need one? Do you need an outline? Do you have one? Okay, another one over there. Harry, anybody else? Over here, Esther. Cheapers. I try to train you guys. <laughs> okay. If you take your outline notes out. Today we are going to look at a stunning prophecy which I have had conversations with with unchurched people over the last two months. And it was a prophecy that was given to Mr. Daniel. And I want to just rewind and quickly set the scene. Then we're going to do something different today. So listen up. Because we're going to break into groups. Eight groups. We're just going to spin around and you're going to form eight groups. So be aware that's coming in about ten minutes. Alright? So you're going to spin around and you're going to do it quick. Here we go. So the scene opens. And Daniel has been fervently praying. I don't mean, oh God, I mean, da, 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 da. God, I need some help. I see what your prophets have said through Jael. Your word has come through Jeremiah the prophet. I see what you said to Nehemiah. I see what you said to ne um, Ezra. So number one, just as an interesting point, he knew the word of God. He'd read it and he knew. And he's praying with God for the salvation of his people. Now it started as just an, a normal prayer. But minutes morphed into hours, and then eventually, Gavin, a courier from heaven arrives. Let's pick it up. Daniel 9 on the screen, verse 20. I'm going to read from the, an old version called a New American Standard. Those of you around in 1977 would remember that version. Now, while I was speaking, I stopped. Right there. Good point. When you pray to keep your mind focused, speak it out. 
If you sit there in your quiet armchair with your eyes closed, I know what's going to happen and so do you. Just stop fibbing and fooling yourself. If you're serious, speak. It'll keep your mind focused. And you'll realize, what a bunch of dribble I just said. And you say, sorry, God, let me try that again. And you'll be far more intentional and focused about your prayer. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication, that's an old word, it means my requests, before the Lord my God, whilst I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, this is the archangel who I was seeing in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. Now on the battleground of prayer, and prayer is a battleground because there's nothing more the enemy would like to do than to just stunt you as a midget in your prayer life. On the battleground of prayer, heroes, people who stand strong in spite of the onslaught, are marked by their perseverance. And you can see that evidenced all through Scripture, but none so clearly in my view is what you see in the book of Revelation. When, when the letters to the, uh, the church in the book of Revelation, to each one of them it says, I've got this for you, but this against you. But then it says, to he who perseveres to the end, or to him who overcomes will I give. So this ability to stand strong is pivotal for Christians. And you'll see wave after wave come through this land and, land, uh, and lands overseas where Christians are, are discouraged and are picked off by the enemy. Through the cares of this world, through the worries of this life, you'll read about that in the parable of the, of, of the seeds, remember? Of the sowing of the seeds. It goes on. And he gave me the instruction, and he talked, this is Gabriel, and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight and understanding. Let me tell you, oh, it's exciting. When God starts to tell you about what's going to happen. Gabriel offers Daniel truth and insight, but not before he assures him of his honored position before the Lord. Don't miss this. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication slash your request, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, you are highly esteemed. So heed the message and gain understanding. So in other words, listen up and gain understanding of the vision. Now, I just want to just pause there. Something's just come to mind. All of us have been to school. Quick question, survey, how many took algebra? Anybody? Did any algebra? Can I see your hands? Okay. I want you to just uh, cast your mind back to when you went to that class, that first algebra class. Imagine if you rolled into that class and the teacher said, today I'm going to teach you about algebra. It's a very important uh, mathematical concept. And uh, here's, here's the deal, though. There's going to be no test and there's going to be no exams and you don't have to take notes. How many of you think that will be a really wise approach to mastering the subject of algebra? Does anybody think that will be a good approach? Clearly, that will be stupid. In the same sense, I sometimes wonder, when we come to church, we teach about God's words. My words don't count a hoot. God's words do. If we are intentional and serious, we should 
take note. And in this case, there's an essence of that tone there. He's basically saying, listen up and pay deep attention to this. And by the way, the other thing, he says here, you're highly esteemed, so give heed to the message, gain understanding. Here's a, just a small point here. God values broken and humble vessels. You may just want to write that down somewhere. Not people who are full of themselves. God gives grace to the humble. But he is opposed to the proud. That's a very important point. Especially we see this here. The angel confirms this. You, Daniel, are highly esteemed. And part of it was because of his contrite and humble approach. So Daniel's first word of repentance, God knew this is the man he wanted to receive this message. Now these next verses we're going to look at are stunning. Because they will now tie together messianic prophecies, in other words, hundreds of years beforehand, exactly when the Messiah would come, and then also what would happen at the very end of the world. So messianic prophecies with the end times is going to be given to Daniel in one message. Now I want you to recall that Daniel has been praying for the restoration of his people to their land of promise. But even though he's praying this, God says, that's okay, but I've got a much bigger picture in mind. I'm going to tell you of the promised Messiah. That I spoke about way back here in, where was it, Genesis 3. Where he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and the seed of the woman will crush his head. Do you remember that? So way back then, it was told. And this is what's going to come now to the coming of the Messiah. Israel's 70-year captivity had been prophesied, and it was coming to an end. And God is about to mark out like on a field, a brand new block of time for the Jews. In verse 24, Gabriel spreads out the timeline before Daniel. He says, here's how it's going to go, mate. Listen up. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people, the Jews, and your holy city, which is Jerusalem. By the way, the word in Hebrew translates weeks as a generic term. It, it literally means units of seven. And we, you and I, normally associate Units of seven happily with a week, right? But is this what the angel is talking about here? Now, that's a good question to ask yourself. Is the angel talking about weeks or something different? How do you figure that out? When you come across the Bible and you come across something that's not quite clear, a good rule of thumb to find out the meaning is to look at the context. That's always an important principle. For instance, if we roll into a donut shop, that'll get some of you thinking, and say, I'll take a dozen. The clerk knows that the context we're talking about, of course, is a dozen donuts. And since Daniel's prayer concerned Israel's 70 years of captivity, in verse 2, it makes sense that Gabriel's units are referring to 70 periods of seven-year units. So Gabriel is going to say this. God's next program for the Jews will be consummated in 70 times 7, that's 490 years. Now, by the time these 490 years are on their course, God will have completed six things, and you can go read it in your own time, for Israel. The first three have to do with sin, 
and Jesus' work on the cross, which you'll see about that. And the second three will be realized at the second coming of Christ. You'll see this. Let's pick it up from Daniel 9. This is on the screen. Daniel 9.25. Know, in other words, you should know this. And not only know, but the next word is and understand. Know and understand this. What? Here it goes. From, put a stake in the ground right there, from this point, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one. The Jews knew the anointed one was the Messiah, the, the, the coming Messiah. The ruler comes, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. After the 62 sevens, so there's seven sevens, 62 sevens. After that, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, how do we know which date to begin the counting from? How do we know that? After all, if you read the Bible clearly and you look at secular history, you can see there were actually three decrees. Which one? Out of all three, there was only one that was issued to restore and build Jerusalem. You'll read about that in Daniel 9.25a. Artaxerxes decreed to Nehemiah in Nehemiah 2, 1 and 8, and Nehemiah gives us the exact date. As the month of Nisan, that's not the car, but the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that's in verse 1, or March the 5th, 444 BC. That's when that decree was issued. You can read about it in secular history. So if this is the starting point, as Artaxerxes hands over the letters clearing Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall, remember Nehemiah builds the wall? The prophecy clock starts the moment he gets the document in his hand. Bang! From that moment... Now, for those of you who are interested, let's take a brief, quick look at the math. Multiplying seven groups, do you want to pop up the next one, Chris? Multiplying seven groups of seven, seven sevens are? Right, bang. Then we need to multiply six groups of seven. We get 434 years. Add the two together, 483 years. Now, Daniel was told that these 483 years would begin at the issuing of the decree to restore Jerusalem and rebuild it. And where's the end point? Very clear, Scripture is. And it would end with the coming of the anointed one, the ruler, that is, the Messiah. Are we clear on that? Get it? Good. You need to be able to explain this. Begins then, ends then. Now, we know the date that the decree was given again. Artaxerxes issued that in March 444 BC. That was a start date. But when did this end? When did the 483 years end? Now, the the Jews used the lunar calendar. Okay? And there were 360 days in the lunar calendar in force at that time, which takes us forward. I've already done the math for you, and trust me, I did math, and I got this one dead right. There's 173,880 days. Exactly. And that brings us to March 30th, AD 33. March 30th, AD 33. And that very day, 
the prince, the ruler that Daniel had predicted rode into Jerusalem. And we're going to see about this. We're going to tie this together in the groups. Rode into Jerusalem on AD 33 on what we call Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. Does that sound like anybody that you probably heard about? And you'll read about that event in Matthew 21. Some of your groups are going to look at this. Matthew 21, 1 13, Mark 11, Luke 4, and John. Amazing. Five centuries before an event actually happened, God said, here's the beginning, and he put a whacking great X and drew an exact date on when Jesus would appear as a long-awaited Savior, the son of David, going into Jerusalem on a donkey. And by the way, that was even prophesied. This is just touching the surface. So within a few days of that event, the anointed one was, Scripture says, cut off. In other words, put to death. Now we're going to look at that very soon. So a prophecy made centuries in advance was fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now some of you may say, well, how do we even know that this happened centuries before? Do we have any evidence of that? Well, you can go to the Dead Sea Scrolls and you can go even further back to that and call it the Septuagint. And we're going to look at that in a second. So here's an application I want you to to take away from this before we delve into some rolling our sleeves up and doing a bit of work. What do we learn from Daniel's incredible prophecy? Number one, God is a master of the details. He's a master of details. Think. 173,880 days exactly to March the 30th, AD 33. So God's word to Daniel about the exact day that Jesus would ride into Jerusalem is astounding. It's just one example of where the details fall in line. Just one. Now here's a question for you. Implication. There's an implication from a question, and it's this. If God knows the future so well and can sovereignly oversee and watch over his plan, can God handle the details in your life that you stress and fret about so often? You bet he can. Secondly, it's often lost to the Christian mind today, God deals in specifics. Specifics. He is a God of detail. Makes me smile when some of the scientists these days are racking their brains about quantum physics and quantum computing, which is a passionate subject of mine. Thinking, whoa, we had no idea about this so little time ago. God is a God of details. Now, what we're going to do for the balance of our time, we're going to break into some groups in a moment, and we're going to take a look at a few, just a few. I could have given you dozens upon dozens upon dozens of messianic prophecies throughout the Old Testament that were provably written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, depends upon which book it was, before Christ. But before we do, uh, in fact, what I want you to do is I want you to now just take a break, Group into, you need to have, how about we do, yeah, just group yourself into eight groups, okay? Can we see how we can self-organize? Let's go. You've got 30 seconds, eight groups, go. Turn around, turn the chairs around. Don't worry about that. Spin them around. Everybody grab a seat. In fact, 
What I'd like you to right now do, just to set the context of what we're going to be looking at, I'd like you to focus your attention. Are we ready to go with the video, guys? Sound ready? I want you to check this out. I want to set the setting. I have been here twice, but it is very important you know the historical, evidential reasons for where we get some of these uh, scriptures. Hit it, mate. Dead Sea Scrolls. That wasn't a promotion for Google, but Google are our friends at the moment on this because they have done a massive project on this. You can go and see this. You can take your children there so they can see that this is anchored in fact. If you don't get anything out of this today, apart from this, remember this sentence, facts are your friends. Facts are your friends. And it's up to us to actually... Uh, familiarize ourselves with the facts henceforth. We've got Ray and Richard coming next week, which will give you so many facts. And not only that, give you the ability to interact with them and handle objections. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? How do you know that? With, for example, that great Isaiah scroll. It's in its entirety. There are still thousands upon thousands of scrolls that we have that we haven't even unraveled yet because it takes time. Thousands and thousands of them. But you can take that great Isaiah scroll and you can look at it in Hebrew because Hebrew hasn't changed for thousands and thousands of years. And people who read Hebrew read it, it's exactly word for word. Word for word. Which gives you great uh, uh, confidence in the chain of custody as these scribes over the years did these things. Right. So what I want to do now is I'm going to give each of you a different um, scripture. My thing wakes up here a second. Um, this group here, I want you to take from the scroll of Isaiah, I want you to look at the first one, which is Isaiah 7.14 and Matthew 1.18-25. You can see them there, that's your group. This group over here, okay, Steph, and by the way, I need you to select a spokesman and a spokeswoman, okay? Uh, Stefan's group, you're going to take Micah 5.2 and Matthew 2.1. Next group down the back, okay, with Wayne and uh, down there. You guys are going to pick up Zechariah 9.9 and Matthew 21.1. Over here, this group here, Greg's group, you're going to pick up the next one, which is Isaiah 53.5 and John 19.34. This group here, you're going to pick up Isaiah 53.7 and Matthew 7.12. I beg your pardon. Down the back. Um, if you guys can pick up Psalm 22, verse 18, Matthew 27, 35, and this group down here, if you can pick up Isaiah 59:9 and Matthew 27:57 through 60. And what I want you to do is I want you to dig them up, look at them, and I want two of you to agree what you're going to share with the group to somebody and say... Uh, how this corroborates, share your observations and how the two things corroborate. You have got five minutes and then you're going to share. So go. Okay. I hope you've seen in this the third point here. Is what we learn from this is God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. God's word does not err. If the Messiah came the first time, just as God said he would, we can bank on him coming the second time, just as he says he will. And it will be a surprise, because the very next event on God's calendar is the rapture. Just gone. That's it. Gone. That's a promise that we can hold to with certain hope. So God keeps his promises. He's a God of integrity. 
God can be taken at his word. And truly, there is only one response to these incredible prophecies. I've just shown you a handful. There are hundreds. As we close, I want to take a moment to look at this. Remember this. Fix it in your mind. Take to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God. And there is no other. There is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do what I please. From the east I summon a bird to pray. From the far off land, a man to fulfill my purpose. What I have said, I will bring about. And what I have planned, that will I do. So what is our response? I think my response is to honor the God that we love as the one who holds our future. Even in the stormy seas of life, he holds our futures firmly in his hands. And I encourage you to draw near to him in the turbulent currents of life and the shifting sands in which we live. I want to finish with some words of our blessed Savior. And may this be the Spirit of God speaking to many of you today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I'm going. Our good friend Thomas who actually went down to India after the persecution, dropped down there, landed there, walked across the big mountains, and there's a a basilica where his bones are to this day. This is the man, the doubting Thomas guy. That's how, by the way, Christianity came to India. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is very narrow. Two plus three only equals five. Not four, not six. It is exacting. Don't ever apologize for truth being narrow. Father, thank you that your word will never fail. Thank you that we can be encouraged in our hearts to trust in you and you tell us not to let our hearts be troubled or overcome by the worries and the cares of this world. Thank you that you promised you are coming back to take us and we look forward to being with you. Thank you once again, Holy Spirit, for illuminating our minds and helping us love you with our minds and our hearts. And everybody said, Amen. God bless.